With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. And you can find us here every Friday night, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, Studio A. Uh, tonight we have... a uh, a really big guest. This is someone uh, who uh, I was really hoping to get for a while, and it's, it's kind of fitting that we would have her on tonight with all this stuff. Everyone's heard about the Waco and the Ruby Ridge, and everybody's all up in arms about this Bundy Ranch uh, situation, uh, but this is really a, one of the first families uh, in America that were attacked by the police uh, in their home and uh, bombed, and uh, a bomb was dropped on them, and then they were set fire to, and uh, I believe either five or six children were, were uh, died in this bombing, this police bombing on this innocent family. And uh, 60 homes uh, of totally uninvolved people and the friends and neighbors of this group uh, uh, were also burned out of their homes in, in Philadelphia in the mid-80s. And uh, I've always wanted to bring this uh, story to the public because so many people don't know about it. And I want to thank uh, our producer, uh, Keith Davis, uh, who was in touch with the Ramona Africa, who was now the lone surviving member uh, of that bombing uh, in Philadelphia back in the 80s. Ramona, are you there? I'm here on the move. Oh, amen. Ramona, thank you so much for coming. Uh, can you tell us, uh, describe what, what MOVE is, uh, what kind of organization it is, what kind of a group it is? <clears throat> okay. MOVE is a revolutionary organization founded by John Africa. Uh, when I say revolutionary organization, what makes us revolutionary is that we have one common belief, one very simple belief, and that is in life. Our belief is in the sanctity, the all-importance of life. Without categorizing whether it's animal life, human life, plant life, the water that we cannot exist without, the air we cannot exist without, you know, the uh, anything, life, the earth that feeds us that we can't exist without, you know. This is what John Africa taught move people is the priority. Nothing is more important than life or the force which we call Mother Nature, our mama, our mother, uh, that coordinates all of life. Because we have that one simple belief, the government, this system that we have been 
at war with ever since move because those that run this system and believe in this system don't care about life. They have betrayed and bartered the life in all of us and around all of us for money, for money. They have compromised life for money. You know, they have compromised the air for air pollution. They have compromised the water for water pollution. They have compromised the earth that feeds us, you know, for toxic waste in the earth. And when move not only speaks about these things and always spoke about these things and confronted those that are pushing these things, uh, I'm talking about officials, political officials, also those behind them, these industrialists, you know, that don't care about the air, the water, or animals, or anything that's alive. Their God is a dollar bill, and they don't care what they have to do to keep that money flowing. When we would confront them, uh, you know, initially not a lot of attention was paid to move back in the very early 70s when we first surfaced in Philadelphia. But as our message got out, and our first demonstrations were at the zoo, demonstrating against the abuse and uh, imprisonment and enslavement of animals, innocent animals. When this government locks people up, gives them life sentences in prison, they say it's because the person committed a crime was wrong. Well, what did the, what crime did the lion commit? to be sentenced to life in prison rather than being able to run free, you know, in the jungles of Africa where they're supposed to be, you know. What about birds that have to spend their life in a cage? What crime did they commit, you know? And we would put out information about these things. We would demonstrate at unsafe boarding homes for the elderly where elderly people had their Social Security checks basically stolen by the people that run these homes, um, where uh, the homes were virtually nothing but fire traps, where they were emotionally and physically mistreated, abused. Um, we had demonstrations at the school board, you know, behind what they were teaching you know, our children, and also the uh, lack of protectiveness for the children. I mean, children were being sexually abused by counselors, teachers, being physically abused, you know, in schools. And we spoke out on all these things, and the government started getting real nervous. Well, let me ask you about one of The group was basically started by John Africa. Absolutely. And then he had, how did he get like a group together? Like he just started out with a couple of friends or his wife, his family. Like how did he gather people around him to follow his vision? What happened is um, John Africa had a friend who was a professor at Community College of Philadelphia. And he would talk to this friend. His name was Donald Glassy. And he would have Donald uh, write down 
you know, the points and the principles that John Africa was explaining to him. And they would later be typed up. And what happened was Donald Grassy started incorporating some of these teachings, this belief, in his classes at community college. And then John Africa invited some of Donald Grassy's students to his home to talk about and discuss, you know, these teachings. And they would be giving a copy, you know, a section of information that John Africa had uh, had Donald Glassy, you know, write down and Donald Glassy typed it up and it was distributed to these students. And uh, then they would come to study sessions, they would call, and it would be talked about, and John Africa would explain in more detail, you know, what exactly he was uh, talking about. And where did John get his vision from? You know, a lot of people ask that question, and I cannot answer it for certain except to say that it did not come from academia. John Africa was... Uh, said to be illiterate according to the system standards. He could not really read or write. He rejected schooling. You know, uh, he was recorded, I believe, as going to school up until about the third grade, I think, something like that. But he resisted it even at that point and then just would not go back. So he was like illiterate according to system standards. So he didn't get it from academia. Uh, He was just always in touch with life and vehemently opposed to anything that goes against life, meaning anything that exploits, imprisons, or enslaves, that uh, pollutes or poisons or maims or kills, Anything that's alive, he's just always been opposed to that and always very reverent and protective of anything that's alive. And, uh, you know, I guess as he got older, he was able to, you know, explain it more and speak on it more. But other than that, I cannot explain to you how John Africa got this understanding. Now, is he you know, alive today or is he in prison or was he uh, murdered by the police? The bombing. He died in, in the second bombing, okay. Yeah, well, there was only one bombing. And then the second attack, though, the second police attack. Right, right. But, you know, that's who MOVE is. It's what we believe in. And for those that run this system to attack us the way they did, and to uh, feel so threatened by us and to really hate us the way they do because, I mean, you have to really hate somebody to bomb them and burn them alive, including babies. You have to hate them. Um, The question is, why? What about our belief is so threatening? It's threatening because those running this system do not care about or believe in life. 
the force that's keeping them alive. They don't believe in it, and they're not going to have anybody, you know, uh, exposing them and influencing people to put priority on life, on what's important. So they want to get rid of us. And initially, their so-called strategy was to offer us money, uh, in, in their terms, funding for, you know, different projects we might want to do and uh, jobs, you know, positions in this system. Uh, but MOVE made it clear that we cannot be bought off or bribed or co-opted to compromise what we know is right, compromise life for a job, a dollar bill you know, a salary. And when they saw that they couldn't buy us off or co-opt us, that is when the uh, brutality and attempted, and I say attempted, uh, intimidation began because MOVE will not, never was intimidated. But they tried. They tried. Uh, when MOVE people would set up a peaceful peaceful demonstration at some institution of this system, whether it was the zoo, whether it was the Board of Education, whether it was a, a conference held by Dow Chemical or DuPont Chemical, you know, uh, institutions that poison the environment. Um, what would happen is when we would set up, cops would come out there and they would tell us, that we could not demonstrate to cease and desist to pack up and go home. And MOVE wouldn't just, you know, go along with that. We questioned them. We said, what are you talking about? We can't have a peaceful demonstration. You know, uh, isn't this America where you tell the world that in America all these freedoms exist, freedom of speech, freedom, you know, to protest and demonstrate, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, all these freedoms, what does the Declaration of Independence or, or the Constitution say, except move? You know, what are you talking about? That's when the beatings would start. Move men would be beat by cops into unconsciousness, into uh, broken limbs, you know. How uh, many members did you have at that time? I'm sorry? How many members did you have at that time when you were at the first house and you were doing these demonstrations and stuff? Well, at the very beginning of MOVE, I think there was uh, maybe close to 100 members. Uh, but <clears throat> as the beating started and the attempted intimidation by the system, there were those who, you know, just honestly said, I can't do it, you know, I can't do it. And some said that and left and were supporters who would do whatever they felt like they could do. Some others uh, were more insecure and more egotistical, and rather than be honest with themselves, they tried to find fault with move with move belief instead of with the system that was beating them and trying to intimidate them. Those people left and were not supporters and, you know, 
they just left and, and never came back. Some of them even tried to uh, defame move, I guess, to make themselves feel better about themselves and uh, not look at themselves as not being able to, you know, stand up for what is right. Sure. Yeah, around so, that time in the mid-'70s, there was a lot of uh, FBI COINTELPRO and, and infiltration yeah. of undercover cops in movements and different revolutionary groups. Did you guys experience that as well? Oh, yeah. The federal government tried to frame, move people up, including John Africa and several, you know, other move members uh, on federal charges of um, weapons charges, bomb-making, terrorist, you know, international terrorism charges, conspiracy. And in fact, um, they wanted to arrest John Africa back in, in, uh, like, 1977, I believe it was, on these charges. But they couldn't find John Africa. And... um, in 1981, on May 13th of 1981, no less, they arrested John Africa and other move people up in Rochester, New York. And in 1981, John Africa went on trial with my brother uh, Mo Africa in federal court for two months. It was a two-month trial, um, and... He had exactly those charges on him, and John Africa could have gotten, uh, I mean, the rest of his life in prison, you know, if he had been found guilty. John Africa went into court, represented himself. This is a man that is illiterate, has no political or financial influence. Um, You're talking about a black man with long, knotty hair, dreadlocks, coming into federal court with a sweatshirt, jeans, and boots, old boots on. Never uh, made an opening statement, never uh, uh, cross-examined any of the prosecution witnesses, never raised one objection, slept through most of the trial where there were two prosecutors bringing in these bags of black powder that they said was explosives belonging to John Africa. I mean, they did everything to try to get John Africa convicted of all of these charges. I mean, they wanted him bad. John Africa made a closing statement at that trial. Got himself and our brother Mo Africa acquitted of Every single charge. Now, that is unprecedented by a rich white man, let alone a money-poor, revolutionary black man. But you don't hear about that. No, I had never heard about that. I had never heard about that part of the story. And I actually, I met you guys. Uh, Some of of the MOVE members came down to Yippie headquarters in the, I guess it was the late 70s or early 80s. And uh, okay. we wrote, yeah, we wrote a story about you in Overthrow Ma- uh, newspaper, and I had not even, I wasn't familiar with that part of the story. That's amazing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that is why uh, Mumia Abu Jamal, if people are familiar with him, he's a journalist that was on death row for like thirty years, and we finally were uh, successful 
in getting him off of death row, and we're still working for him. Anyway, uh, when Mumia went to uh, court, state court, he was accused wrongly of killing a police officer. And um, when he got ready to go to trial, he asked for John Africa. This was in, uh, I guess he started going to trial in January of uh, 82 because the incident happened in December of 81. And Mumia asked for John Africa not to be his lawyer because he knew that the courts would never, you know, go for that. They'd say, he's not a member of the bar, he can't represent you or whatever. Right. But Mumia wanted John Africa to just be at the table with him to counsel him, to advise him. And that's perfectly acceptable, but the courts would not do it. And that, that's what they tried to say. Well, he's not a member of the bar. He's not a lawyer. And Mumia was like, well, shoot, I can't tell he with the federal government. You know. Um, but that's why Mumia wanted him. He knew what he was looking at. He saw what John Africa did in federal court, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, John Africa, his teaching in life, being the priority, you know, being what we need to be respectful of and protective of for our own sake, nobody can dispute that. Nobody can dispute that because I defy anybody to name me anything that's more important than life and the force that coordinates life. What is more important than that? Money, jewels and gems, a, a fashionable car, a big home, you know, what? What is more important than that? Gold, you know, gold is life. But for people that want to separate that and say, yeah, I would want gold. Yeah, well, have an asthma attack or a heart attack and see if you scream for a tank full of gold or a tank full of air. You know? Amen. I hear you. <laughs> I hear it becomes, you. It comes very clear at that point, what's important. What's that's, important. That's, a, that's a great attitude a, to have. We're, we're down to the last five minutes of this portion of the show. Uh, so, so what do you okay. want to get into next before the break? Um, I would like to uh, talk just a little bit about August 8th of 1978, the first police attack on move, just briefly as a background to the bombing. Please do. Okay. Um, because of Moon's uncompromising stand for life and because the government saw that they could not stop us and because we were influencing so many people who, who heard the clarity in the teaching of John Africa and saw the genuine, consistent, serious example of Move you know, in demonstrating our belief, the government was messed up, you know. They didn't want us influencing people that way because, you know, that would mean the demise of people believing in this system. So they manufactured so-called reasons 
for them to attack us. They said our home has housing code violations. Housing code violations like no screens in the window. We did not have electricity or gas in our house, so it wasn't a fire hazard or anything, you know. Um, but they said our home uh, had housing code violations, which is ridiculous because these people don't care about poor people, revolutionary people, predominantly, and I say predominantly black people because there are white people in move, uh, Spanish-speaking people in move. We are not a black organization. Anyway, they don't care about people like us living in a house that has housing code violations. You can't get the Department of License and Inspection to make landlords make necessary repairs in in homes that they lease to people and collect money every month for people. And the roofs are leaking. The furnaces, heating furnaces, go out in the winter. Uh, the water, you know, uh, tank breaks. And, I mean, all kinds of things happen. But you can't get this government agency known as the Department of License and Inspection to do anything about it. But they care so much about move people living in a home that doesn't have screens in a window, you know. Um, so they used that as an excuse to say they wanted us out of our home, wanted us to vacate our home by August 1st. And some move people did go on to other activities in Richmond, Virginia, in upstate New York, you know. But other move people stayed in move headquarters. So a judge named G. Fred DeBona, a civil judge, um, issued warrants for every move person. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...that he knew of, even though he knew that some moved people were not in that house, had went on to other coordinated activities. Didn't matter. They issued warrants for every moved person that they thought they knew of. And that's what they used as an excuse to attack our home on August 8th of 1978. Now, since when? You know, let me ask a question, though. They were able to get arrest warrants before an eviction or, or, or arrest warrants based on an eviction? Well, they did. They said that most people had committed a crime by not vacating the premises. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm here, yeah. I, I'm just in shock. But you can see that it, it, it's crazy. It's nothing but an excuse, and I'm not saying it's illegal because legality is whatever they say it is. doesn't matter, you know. Um, but, yes, that is what they use. Actually, the warrants um, that they came out there with was actually a rule to show cause why 
move people should not be held in contempt of court for not vacating the premises. And they showed that- up in huge force with a whole squad of police officers. Uh, oh, we got a break coming up. We're with Ramona okay. Africa, a surviving member of an att- a police attack on a, a family, a group uh, called Move. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, her website is onamove.com, onamove.com, and she's also here uh, to pr- promote and uh, bring awareness to a movie about this story that came out. It's out there right now. It's called letthefireburn.com. Uh, we'll be right back after this break with Ramona Africa, uh, a beautiful woman. Uh, you can just hear the, the, the heart on this woman when she talks about life and, uh, and freedom and revolution and uh this is the kind of thing that they want to stifle in us and when they can't silence us and they can't stifle us uh this is what they do they attack us and they try and prison us and burn us alive uh and it's easy to fight again and get serious about what's going on out there welcome back to the opera report i'm your host private investigator ed opperman every friday night 5 p.m freedomslips.com on studio a uh, we got coming up in the in the upcoming weeks. Uh, we're gonna have an author of uh, the book of Matt, uh, which is the true story of the Matthew Shepard case. And there's a lot of stuff in that case that I know about that's gonna be coming out on that show. We're gonna have Cindy Sheehan, who's gonna be running for governor. And we also have uh, we're gonna be doing a show about the Jim Jones and Jonestown Guyana. But tonight we have a true revolutionary uh, hero in this country, uh, someone who's uh, who fought the good fight and came under attack and is still standing right now. We have Ramona Africa. A representative of the group Move. Her website is onamove.com, and please visit that website and bookmark it uh, because there's nine members of the, the Move family uh, from this first attack, this first unprovoked police attack, way back in the 70s, that are still in prison to this day. Now, you got people, but if, well, I'm going to go on a rant, but there's also a website called letthefireburn.com, which is Ramona's uh, uh, a movie about the. Uh, uh, no, not my movie, not but a movie, movie about yeah. <laughs> We'll get you in a movie, Ramona. Don't worry. I'll get you. I'll put you in my movie when they do a movie about me. But, but please, I don't want people thinking it's our movie because, you know, we, we didn't do it. We don't have a problem with it because uh, the filmmaker, Jason Oster, uh, he did not defame move or anything like that. Um, we feel like the movie is okay but could have been better. Uh, he interviewed, did two extensive interviews with me. He interviewed other people, you know, uh, involved in the whole bombing situation, which I assume was some officials, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he chose not to use any of that in the film. He just used archival footage from the commission put together by Wilson Good. Uh, after the bombing, uh, and other archival footage. And, you know, we feel like we understand why he did that because he didn't want really any controversy. He didn't want to be seen as a move supporter or anything like that. He felt like he would just use the archival footage, show people, you know, what was going on, and leave it at that. And that's his right. I mean, you know. Sure. That's his right. We don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying that's what he did. We feel like it could have been a much better movie if he had used, you know, some of the uh, interviews that he had done. But, look, we we tell people to go see the movie. 
Yeah, more people need to know this story. That, that's a fact. And more people need oh. to know that there's nine members of this movement that are still in prison to this day. A minute there, there are eight MOVE members still in prison going on 36 years now. One of my sisters, Merle Africa, died in 1998. Oh, Twenty unjust years in prison. We firmly believe that they did something to her. You're talking about a strong, healthy move woman that ran, you know, daily exercise, didn't have any problems until suddenly she had some kind of stomach virus or something that she was experiencing. And it wasn't bad, but, you know, she had uh, upset stomach, some kind of stomach virus. Right. And they made her take what they call a lay-in where you're, confined to your cell, you don't go to your job, your prison job. If you have school classes, you don't go to your uh, classes or anything like that. They send food trays to your cell so you don't leave your cell. Merle got one food tray. They made her take the lay-in. She didn't want it. They made her take it. They sent her one tray, and that night she got up to use the bathroom, passed out, it took them a while to get an ambulance there, even though the ambulance was only like 10 minutes away. In the middle of the night, there's no traffic. Uh, they took her to the hospital, and the next thing we heard, she had passed away and got all kinds of, uh, like, two or three different uh, reasons of her cause of death. So there is something really wrong with that picture. The entire and story is tragic. But Ramona, didn't didn't they put you in prison as well? Oh yeah. Um after our family went on trial in nineteen seventy eight, you know, for the death of a police officer, which it was perfectly clear that they could not have killed. Uh nine of my family members went on trial for the death of a cop that was killed with one bullet from one gun. They charged nine of my family members with it. Uh, they went on trial, even though right after, right after uh, they took my family into custody, I'm talking about within hours, they completely demolished our home. They demolished Moose headquarters. Now, that was the scene of the crime. That was vital evidence. Wow. Since when do officials destroy evidence in a serious murder trial, particularly where a police officer is killed? And people you have to understand, this is, this is years prior to the firebombing. This is a whole different location. Right, right yeah. This uh, is the root of the bombing. Our unrelenting fight for the release of our innocent family members who judge Edwin Malnett on his own. This was not a jury trial. It was a bench trial. He found all nine of my family members guilty of murder and sentenced each of them to 30-year minimums, 100-year maximum sentences, then went on a radio talk show program a day or two after that, after sentencing my family. Come on. And when um, asked a direct question 
about who killed that cop, he said, I haven't the faintest idea. But he had just convicted and sentenced my family. So move waged an unrelenting unrelenting fight for our family, you know, exposing the conspiracy against our family. And when the government could not shut us up, they decided, well, look, we can't silence them. You know, jail doesn't stop them. Beating doesn't stop them. We can't bribe them or anything. Well, we're just going to have to kill them. I mean, it may sound far-fetched to some people, but others may understand exactly what I'm talking about. It's the same policy that this government institutes abroad, overseas, with various you know, leaders of countries that they want to get rid of. They kill them. They kill them, you know, and that's what they did with Move. They worked over a year, well over a year, coming up with a plan that involved involved the uh, bombing of our home. And when they felt like they had a workable plan, that's when they came out there and bombed our home. They had no reason, no, you know, uh, justifiable reason to do it. So what they did after they felt like they had this workable plan, they reached back two weeks before May 13th when cops was all around the back of our home and our dogs were barking and we looked out back and saw all these cops, turned on the speaker at our house and let our neighbors know that cops were all around the back of our house. We didn't know what they were up to, but we don't trust them. We know they're up to no good, and we were not going to let them bust in our house, you know, and people not know what was going on. That was our message. We were on the loudspeaker maybe 10 minutes, okay? Another cop, a plainclothes cop, walked up the front steps of our home, knocked on the door. Uh, We went out there, two of us, me and my sister, Teresa Africa, who was killed in the bombing, went out, talked to this cop for about an hour. About an hour we stood out there talking to him. He left. He walked away. We went back in the house. I mean, nothing happened. But on May 11th, You know, uh, a Saturday, when the cops felt like they were ready to move on us, to to kill us, they went to Judge Lynn Abraham's home. And when asked why they went to her, they said because she was the emergency judge. They went and got her to sign warrants for four of us, four of us myself and three of my sisters and brothers, uh, charging us with crimes on April 29th of disorderly conduct, terroristic acts, based on nothing, nothing, you know? The cops stood out there on April 29th talking to us for over an hour. Would he do that if he felt terrorized and threatened, you know? 
but they didn't have anything else. So they reached back and picked that out of the hat and went and got warrants to try to justify their attack on us. And they were still pissed off that they failed to kill move people in 1978 because they tried. That's what it was about. It wasn't about an arrest. It was about killing move people off. And they were mad because they failed. So this time, when they feel like they had another chance, they were going for the gusto. They came out there not only with all of the artillery of war that they came out there with in 78, they came out there this time in 85 with a 50 caliber machine gun, an M60 automatic rifle, a sniper rifle with silencers on it. I believe there was a and big fire hose too, right? That they were pointing and trying to knock down uh, uh, parts of the building? Four, four deluge hoses, fire hoses that yeah. um, pump out 10,000 pounds of water pressure per minute. Four hoses, that's 40,000 pounds of water pressure per minute. And, you know, you can never really have or conceive of just how much pressure that is. It's horrendous. Think about Bull Connors in the South in the 60s, you know, when he had his fire people, firefighters, turn those hoses on demonstrators, how people were knocked off their feet and right. how much that was. But anyway. It was out um, for the last 10 minutes, so get out what you have to get out, okay? All right. Basically, you know, they came out there to kill. Yeah. They used all of those means to kill us. And when the, the 10,000 rounds of bullets didn't kill us and bring us out the house, when the water pressure didn't, when the tear gas didn't, they dropped a bomb on our home. They got a state police helicopter uh, with the Philadelphia Bomb Squad in it and, and uh, a state policeman as a helicopter, another state policeman as a co-pilot. And without any warning, I mean, they said nothing, made no announcements at all. They flew over our home and dropped that bomb on the roof of our home. The fire commissioner admits openly that he was uh, made aware that there was a fire on the roof of our house and that that fire, which he termed an incipient fire, a fire in the beginning stages, could have been extinguished at that point. But a conscious decision was made to let that fire burn. And when they did that, it was clear that they didn't care about anybody in that house. Because when have you ever heard of firefighters who run into burning buildings to save people? When have you ever heard of them making a decision to let a house burn, let a fire burn, when there are men, women, babies, animals? in that structure, in that building. It never happens. But they did that in May of 1985 because their aim was to kill, not to arrest. When we realized, because we were all in the basement, when we realized that our home was on fire, 
we immediately tried to get our children, our animals, and ourselves out of that basement, you know, out of that house. But they were shooting and at you. Exactly. That's what I was getting ready to say. The instant they saw us trying to come out, and we were hollering, we're coming out, we're bringing the kids out, we're coming out. The kids were hollering, we're coming out, they're bringing us out. The instant they could see us, they opened fire, shooting us back into that burning building at least twice, at least twice. People ask me, well, how did you and Birdie get out? You know, how did y'all get out? We were the closest to the door, but the thing was, you're faced with a situation where you're going to choke on smoke, choke to death, and be burned alive, or possibly be shot to death. So we were trying to get out of that building. And miraculously, and I don't use that word loosely, we, you know, weren't shot. We made it out, and we weren't shot. We were burned severely, both of us, but we were not shot to death. But people that were still in the house coming out behind us, the medical examiner reported that they not only were burned alive, but they had bullet fragments in them, bullet fragments from where the cops shot at them. But then they weren't satisfied with that. They arrested you and threw you in prison for how many years, nine years? Seven years. There was a charge me with everything that they did, but uh, they had to throw out all of the charges listed in the warrants that they came out there with because they were bogus. There was, you know, no validity to them. So they threw out all the charges that they claimed they came out there to deal with uh, and charged me with everything that they did on May 12th and 13th because they came out there on Mother's Day, Sunday, May 12th. It ended on May 13th, but they came out there on Mother's Day. Anyway, I was found guilty of one charge, riot, riot. I'm in my own house where we're minding our business, and we're surrounded by cops who attack us, but we rioted? I mean, I I would say unbelievable, but... It's very believable. Well, because you I mean, live through it. You live through it. But to me, I'm sitting here in shock, and I know this story. And I can't believe yeah. the people hearing this story right now are not outraged. And why this? Uh, yeah. This is a national tragedy, this story. How many children were killed in, in the ages of those children that, that were murdered in that building? Five children and six adults. Uh, I don't know the age because we don't really deal with that, gotcha. you know, with But they were very young children, very young. I mean, they weren't even teenagers, you know. They were young children. Now, when when Birdie, uh, the young uh, young boy, Birdie, when he got out, did he live a a happy life? What was his life like? I know he just died recently, too, in another tragic uh, circumstances, uh, too young. He passed away. Uh, But they took Birdie for a move, and... They dug up his father, biological father, out of the Whitworths because Birdie's mother was killed in the bombing. And um, his mother, Rhonda, and his father, biological father, Indina, 
had been separated, divorced since Birdie was an infant. And then Rhonda came to move with Birdie when he was a baby. And Andino had nothing to do right. with Birdie from that point on. But they dug him out of the woodwork and, um, you know, pushed him to get custody of Birdie because they were not going to allow him backward move. That they die and go to hell before they did that. So they dug him out first. And what Andino Ward uh, saw in Birdie was dollar signs. He obviously didn't care about the boy. You know, he had no contact with him. Even up to right before May 13th, when the media was hyping things up a bit, he didn't come to Osage Avenue and say, you know, I know my son is in there, or is my son in there? I want to know if he's okay. I don't want him hurt. But Ramon, we have less than three minutes, okay? And by the way, you're invited to come back anytime you want to come back and make an announcement or you want to come back and tell more of this story. You have an open invitation. Uh, what I want to know from you right now is what can people do? The biggest thing, I think, is to support the uh, the, the Move 9, the, the, the remaining eight living members that are in hey. prison. What can we do? What can we do? Uh, what people can do is contact us because it would take me more than the time I have to tell people. But as you said, go to our website, onamove.com, or call me at 215-386-1165. That's my home number. Or um, email me at onamove. L-L-J-A for Long Live John Africa at gmail.com. Now, I'm not at home now. I'm out in uh, the Bay Area of, of California, uh, but I'll be back home Monday. So call and leave a message and a way for me to contact you. Email me or, you know, do I have all this information up on my blog, the Opperman Report, but the email I have okay. is onamovelja at aol.com. Do you want that one on there or no? No, it's llja. Yeah, llja, but at aol.com, not Gmail. Okay, I, I checked that too. The one I check mostly, though, is Gmail. But either one, I, I, I look at the AOL emails as well. Okay, great. So onamove.com, Ramona, Africa. Uh, bless you, Ramona. Okay, and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime you want to come. Well, I'm minister of communication for the organization, so this is what I do. <laughs> thank you very much, and uh, you just have so much warmth and love in your heart. I just, I love you. Anytime well, you want to come back. Out of love, not in <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. You have an open invitation to come back. I want to get you. I want you to have to come back and tell us some more of this story. Uh, just okay. Anytime. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Ramona Africa. Right after Wonder this. Move and long live revolution. Amen. Long live the revolution. And, and revolutionary uh, um, elder statesmen like Ramona Africa, who we need to hear from more uh, in the news and on shows like this. We need more of uh, uh, Ramona, i got to hang up, okay? But I'm going to call you during the week, okay? Thank you.